Syzygy, episode 60, Big Moons. And welcome back to another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name's Chris Stewart, sitting opposite me at the table in her office, as ever, Emily Brunsden. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. So today we're talking about moons, specifically big moons. Well, there's been a few recently. Yes, and there's going to be some more. Some more. So we've had, we've had a few big moons and there's going to be more big moons. And we've talked about moons on this podcast a few times now. Arguably too many times for, for only one part. Of the universe, I mean, a fairly prominent part in the night sky. Well, it's a big, big bit in the sky, isn't it? It is. It is big, but it it does kind of make me wonder. Like, surely, surely, sometime soon, we're going to run out of moon-related stuff. We're going to run out of lunar topics for this podcast. Apparently not, because we've got a load of big moon stuff to talk about today, Emily. What's going on? What's with the big moons? Big moons. So we're going to see across the first half of 2020 a bit of a you know resurgence in the um, popular press about supermoons. Was it this time last year? Um, you suddenly became Moon Girl, <laughs> you know, on the on the popular press locally and even nationwide. It suddenly, hey, let's talk to Emily about supermoons because there was a string in a row of weirdly named moons. And that's astronomy, apparently? Well, not exactly. Not really? But it turns out that if you do want to get someone into your, you know, press article that's going to talk sensibly about moons, astronomers are a good place to look for. Well, I mean, it does immediately come to mind. It's either astronomers or astrologers, and we'd rather the former than the latter. So just remind us, what were what were some of the things that you were talking about sort of 12 months ago? There were some weird moons. So, yeah, up. we had some of the moons that are actually going to make a resurgence again oh, okay. this year. Okay. Uh, so we had, I think we had three supermoons in a row last year, and this year we're going to build on that. We've got four supermoons mm. in a row. Four in a row? Four Four in a row. So we've already um, hit one of the four. So, uh, so what have we had so far? Last month on February 9th, we had the uh, snow moon. Never heard of that one. Now, well, that was it, it was in the suite last year. Oh, as was well. it? Okay. I must have missed that one. I must have still been asleep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll get to a definition of what a super moon is mm-hmm. later, but you, you'll often see these moons called as things like super snow moon. <laughs> So we so just to be clear, we've had a snow moon, but we haven't had a super snow moon. We've had a super snow moon before, but the actual word snow has very little scientific meaning. You you stagger me with that. I'm I'm absolutely amazed to hear that that's not really astronomically research based. No, and it's actually it's something that I'm not really super comfortable as even as a human <laughs> because I I do okay so the the names of moons the names of the um 12 or 13 full moons in a year are there is some claim that these names that are commonly used uh come from Native American tribes. Okay. Now that already starts to ring alarm bells to me personally because I'm not no anthropologist by any stretch of the imagination but first of all there's a huge diversity of peoples that were living in yeah. North America. Yeah yeah yeah. Um and whether even these people would agree that these are the names. Um, when I looked up, for example, the snow moon, I also got names like the hunger moon, the storm moon and the chased moon. Okay. So I guess you you could argue it the other way and say, yep, snow moon, perfectly legit. But so are all of these other terms that we could use interchangeably for exactly the same phenomenon. So let's let's 
start with that one off the bat? The snow moon's the one we've had this year? The snow moon was in February. And yep. that was that what? Was, that was a super moon. Okay. But why a snow moon? Just it was in the month of February. Right. Okay. Yeah. So being absolutely clear here, a snow moon is a full moon. In the month of February. That's it. That's it. Yeah. That's all. That's all. Right. So you get one, okay. You get a snow moon every year. Right. If you believe yeah. in a snow moon. I can see how astronomers might not get particularly excited about this. There's not a lot of research grants going for full moons in the month of February. Like it either is or it isn't. And you don't get a lot yeah. of funding to research that one. And uh, it's not <clears> particularly uh, universal either because anyone in the Southern Hemisphere will look around and say snow. Yeah. What? <laughs> yes. Uh, beg to differ. Yeah, depending on where you are, it's either really hot or your entire country's on fire. Either way, not a lot of snow going on. Yeah. Okay. So snow moon, we've had. That's full moon, month of February. Yep. What's next? So the next one's in March, March the 9th. Yep. There's a full moon, which is also a super moon. Yeah. This is called the worm moon by some people. Because it's in March. Because it's in March. And the worms come out in March because it's spring. Maybe, but If equally... you've got a big compost pile full of worms, it's a worm moon. I saw a worm months and it wasn't March, so I don't yeah, really know. I, yeah, okay. But uh, the but worms you, get that one. You could also call it the crow moon, the crust moon, the sap moon, the sugar moon, the lenten moon, or the chaste moon, which some of those overlap with other months. Yeah, I was about to say, surely it wasn't February chaste. Well. March is chaste as yeah, well. Yeah, this is the thing. You, you try and create a system which is maybe based on parts of some culture then that's very generous calling it a system i don't think i don't think this is particularly systematic and i mean just chaste like hang on we're coming into spring the whole thing about spring is fecundity and and nature basically saying get it on and it's chaste really Look, if this is the reason you need not to live your life by astrology then <laughs> go for it <laughs> This was the final nail in the car. I was totally with it until we got to the chaste moon. And I said, no, throwing all my astrology books out the window to be eaten by worms. Okay, so that's next then is March and the worm slash everything else moon. And after that? We got April the 8th, mm-hmm. uh, commonly going to be called the pink moon. Because it's going to be pink? There might be some pink flowers out. <laughs> During April. Is, That's as good as you get? I think so. Come on, there's got to be a reason it's a pink moon. Well, it doesn't actually change colour. I'm no, going to put that out there I, now. I'm, I was guessing that. I mean, that would be fairly extraordinary. Like, that would be worth a research grant, I think, if you if you were able to conclusively show that in a couple of months' time, the moon's going to be pink for the following astronomical reasons. I think that would be awesome. But no, no, it's just no. called that. Okay. But if you really want, you can also call it the sprouting grass moon, the growing moon, the hair moon, the pascal moon, the egg moon, or the fish moon. The egg moon. I, wasn't that a Beatles song? <laughs> I am the egg. Never mind. Okay. and But that's – so that's February, March, April. We've still got one to go. And one more is May. So May the 7th will be yeah. uh, the next full moon, also a super moon, also called the flower moon by Th- some people. That That's it? Just yeah. the flower moon? Flower, moon. Right. flower as in the plant. Right, not, not as, in as in the baking no. stuff. Right. Okay. All right. So that's Well, it. actually, calling no? it the flower moon in terms of the baking stuff might even make more sense because the other names I found for it is, are also called the corn moon or the milk moon. Right. Okay. You know, on a kitchen theme. Yeah. So you, know, could always, yeah. you could get some pancakes going. You could. <laughs> With your yeah, egg yeah. moon. Your based on, based moon. on last, last episode's theme. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we've got... Four of these specially named moons in a row, which is either exciting or annoying, depending on which position you're coming from and how close you are to the astronomical community. Um, But they're all supermoons. 
So we probably should have a bit of a chat about that. I think we have talked about this on the show before, but Emily, remind us if we have or if we haven't, what's a supermoon? Okay, so well, I did actually dig a little bit deeper into this this time. I mean, we've always had known that the supermoon is a full moon that appears to be slightly bigger in the sky because the moon is actually a little bit closer. Right, and this is because the moon doesn't go around the Earth in a perfect circular orbit, that sometimes it's a little bit closer and sometimes it's a little bit further away. And so when it is closer and a full moon, then that's a supermoon. Yeah, but so I actually found the proper definition of a supermoon, and then we can talk about the astronomical sort of flip side of this. Okay, well, it's nice to know that there is a proper definition after all of the preceding 10 minutes of discussion about things that have absolutely no proper Well, take proper a bit lightly here, because this is an astrological definition. Okay, (laughs) astrological... Oh, I just feel this episode spiralling down already. But okay, yep. proper with air quotes around it. Go yep. on. So in 1979, astrologer Richard Knoll decided what the definition of a supermoon would be. Good. Um, and that's defined as a, a moon which is full when it's within 90% of its closest approach to the Earth. All right. Well, that I'm okay with that. That sounds like a reasonable definition to me. Yeah, it doesn't really have any significance at all astronomically. The 90%, why choose 90? Why not choose 95? Why sure. not choose 85? But I mean, why not choose 10? I don't know. If you have to choose a number, choose a number. Let's call it 90. Fine. Uh, it's also applied sort of fairly ad hoc across the internet, at least as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, I found two different um, actual numerical definitions of this. So uh, the websites timeanddate.com use a definition of when it's closer than 360,000 kilometers. Okay. And does that overlap reasonably I mean, with the 90%? Who knows? It's, well, yeah, kind of. Sure. Uh, it seems a bit rounded to me. Okay. Um, although Sky and Telescope use a definition of 358,884 kilometres. And what was the other one? 360,000. 60, so, you know, maybe they're just... It's fairly close. You know, rounding errors. I, mean, it, I don't know. It'd be nice to know that, that people had decided this. On the other hand, it's so non-significant that it probably really doesn't matter. Is it a supermoon? Is it not a supermoon? Sure. Who cares? Yeah, well, this is the thing. A supermoon is nothing special, (laughs) really. (laughs) I mean, it is nice to know... The entire astronomical community just shrugs. Sure, okay. So what astronomers do actually care about when it Mm -hmm. comes to the orbit of the moon and and relative, you know, distances to the Earth, uh, you have two different points in the moon's orbit that we keep track of. Um, They're called perigee and apogee. And what are they? So perigee is the point at which the moon is exactly the closest to the Mm -hmm. Earth in its orbit. Uh, And at that point, it's 363,229 kilometers away. So that's its closest point. Yep. Yep. And it's perigee. And apogee is the opposite of that when it's furthest away. So that's when it's 405,400 kilometers away. Okay. That is quite a significant difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a few percent. So these are the things that astronomers do know. And actually, I got quite... Um, excited by this because it turns out you can you can calculate a lot of things about the moon's orbit and this is re- the real astronomy um, and so a lot of these uh, calculations and terms actually come from very very distant past where astronomy and astrology used to kind of mean the same thing right so when we say words like perigee and apogee and it sounds like I'm going to now tell you that it's a good time to buy a new business <laughs> 
<laughs> That's not the moon is in the seventh house, and and it's a really good time to trust in your friends, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, but the words themselves are still relevant scientific sure. words, and sure. you know, being aware of the moon's orbit is really important um, scientifically. We want to know um, very, very precisely where the moon is when it comes to looking at things like satellites, mm-hmm. uh, because the moon's orbit affects them gravitationally. Of course, if we want to go to the moon, we need to know yep, that's pretty useful. accurately where it is. You know, you need um, those calculations to be closer than, you know, a couple of tens of thousands of kilometers in order yeah. to get into the right orbit and not crash into the surface of the moon or miss it entirely. Yep, that's yeah, really equally. quite useful. Um, and we also use them for things about predicting eclipses and those sorts of yeah. things, which is actually a really, really tricky mathematical thing to do. Mm. It sounds like it should be easy, but it's actually pretty hard. I Yeah, I could imagine it probably is. I mean, on the face of it, it sounds fairly easy. When does the moon get in front of the sun and, you know, how how much is it going to be in front of the sun and so on? But actually, you're dealing with a very tricky three-dimensional problem involving three different things in non-circular orbits. That's very much, as we say in the sciences, non-trivial. Exactly. Yeah. So... Well, here's where I got really excited and started doing a bit of the astronomy uh, in terms of the moon's orbit. And the first thing you might want to know if you're going to calculate the position of the moon's orbit would be the definition of a month. Funny, one of those things that I'd never really considered needed a definition. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you just look at the calendar, don't you? Having said that, we would all do know that the calendar is a bit of a weird thing. And we've got some months which have 30 days and some which have 31 and one which has 28 or 29, depending on the year, for no apparent reason. But other than that, I kind of would have thought a a month is just what we call it. So there's a definition? There's more than one definition, in fact. Excellent. There's there's at least eight or nine that I've found. (laughs) Eight or nine definitions of a month. Uh, Go on then. We'll talk about four. Okay. Just because these are the most common ones. Because the other four are ridiculous. So, all right. Okay. So, the first one you might want to think about is what what would be your your astronomical hunch of definition of what a moon's orbit is? What a month is, sorry. What a month is, uh, well, I mean, it's pretty close to the 28-ish days of a lunar cycle, right? So, it's that's got to be related. A month surely is the moon going around once. Okay, so you want to define a month by the time it takes for the moon to orbit the Earth once. Let's say yes. And return to its original point. Yeah. Okay, very good. This is called. I can see I've just walked into a trap, haven't I? Well, not really. Okay. Um, This is called a sidereal month. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, as you say, at the exact time if the moon's going to return to the exact position in its orbit relative to the background stars, let's mm-hmm. say. So it's going to return to the same point in the constellations. Uh, so this uh, whole sidereal month is actually 27.32 days. Mm-hmm. It's not what you might think of as a month when you look into the sky, though, because it's very different from the month where you might see the phases of the moon change from full moon to full moon. Is that because the definition that we just talked about is against background stars and so on? But in that intervening time, we've just gone around the sun a little bit and we've turned a bit and so on. And so even though the moon is back to where it was in the sky relative to the background stars, we're not where we were. And so things are going to look a bit different. Is that? That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the next I'm learning things. definition like you can have of a month, which is quite yeah. useful. This is kind of a more human definition, you might think, because this is the synodic month. Synodic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the time you have from full moon to full moon or right. new moon to new moon. Right? Okay. So that's so another good definition. Would have been what ancient cultures, for example, would define as a month, right? 
And uh, so this is 29.53 days. All right. So that's a couple of days longer. Mm. Okay. And, and those it, couple of days come from the aforementioned, we've just gone around the sun a little bit. And so the direction that the light's coming from, which is what makes a full moon, um, is slightly different. And so we're adding on a couple of days there. Yeah. So the moon has to travel a little bit further to get back to the point where it's illuminated the same way by the sun. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. So, yeah. And now that particular you know, 29.53 days is not exactly precise uh, because it turns out that the Earth orbiting the sun is not perfectly a circle. No. So the moon's going around the Earth in not a circle and the Earth's going around the sun in not a circle. And so from month to month, the differences per month changes. Ow. So a, 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 one way to think about it is that when the, when the Earth is a little bit closer to the sun, it's actually moving a little bit quicker in its orbit. And when it's a little bit further away from the sun, it's moving a little bit slower. So the amount of distance it covers, the Earth covers in its orbit around the sun changes, which changes how much the moon has to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so at different points in the Earth's orbit, then the time from full moon to full moon will be different. Yeah. By how much? How much does that change? Uh, about three quarters of a day. Wow. Okay. So 18 That's quite, hours or quite so. a lot. Yeah. So we do have to keep that in mind when we're mm. doing our calculations as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Having said that, though, three quarters of a day across a sort of roughly 28, 29-day period, it's significant, but it also shows you that the Earth's orbit is quite circular. Yeah, it, well, we are very, very close yeah, yeah. to Yeah, we're not circular. far off from a circular orbit. Like, it's not like, you know, some months are four days long and some months are, you know, 50 days long. It's it's really quite close to 28, 29 days. Yeah. But you can see now why we don't exactly have the same number of full moons every year. Some moon, some years we have 12 full moons and some years we have 13. Right. Uh, and that's because you can't, you can't divide your 365 days of a year exactly into these numbers. Yeah. And you get a whole number yeah. back again. That makes sense. It's not quite as clockwork a universe as we perhaps once yeah. So it's a bit annoying that we can't have the same number. You know, if we want to have an astronomical definition of a year, the astronomical definition of a month doesn't quite work. Sure. That. But I mean, why should astronomy be any different from any other branch of science where it's messy in the real world? <laughs> you know? It is very, very messy. Yeah. Okay. So that's two definitions of a mm -hmm. month. One is when, when does the moon get back to where it was in relation to the fixed, even though they're not particularly fixed, background of stars. And the other is when do we get back to full moon from a full moon again. Okay, yeah. that's two. Okay, so the third one's slightly more complicated. Now, we've got to imagine the moon's orbit as an ellipse now. Okay, not so, a circle, it's an ellipse. Yeah, so we have this, this perigee and apogee. Yep. Now, those positions of where perigee and apogee are change over time. What you can imagine is the whole ellipse rotates around the Earth. Okay, so it's the moon's moving in an ellipse, not a circle, and that ellipse itself is rotating around the earth so you it's like yeah okay going in an ellipse and then that ellipse slowly but surely turns yeah around. so sometimes perigee is close to the sun sometimes mm -hmm. it's on the opposite side of the earth right. to the sun yeah which is why we don't always have super moons when it's a full moon sometimes we have a super moon and sometimes we have it that the moon is at the average distance and sometimes we have it that the moon is really far away or a bit further away because of that rotating of the ellipse. All right. Yeah. So that whole ellipse takes about nearly nine years to go round. 
Right. Okay. That's so quite a long time. Yeah. So it's processional. So this is um, in the same way that uh, we have procession in all sorts of orbits. We have procession of the Earth's rotation axis um, as a, probably the most famous example. Yeah. So if you drew a line out from the top of the Earth um, of its spin axis and looked at what star that is, at the moment that star is Polaris. The North Star. The North Star. Um, from the top anyway. We don't have a bottom star. No, it's sort of a bit of a void really, isn't it? It's a bit it? annoying. Yeah. Uh, but that will change over time and that's because this procession of the spin axis of the Earth uh, changes over, right. I think, 26,000 years or something. Yeah, yeah. So we've got a little while to wait yeah. before Polaris moves moves out of the northern northern pole. But you're saying that the same phenomenon, the same physical phenomenon called precession is what's behind the ellipse of the yeah. moon's orbit, slowly but surely rotating around. And is that why, because it takes nine years, you said, yeah. roughly. Is that why we've got so many supermoons happening now? Is because we're at a point in our orbit and the moon's orbit and the precession of the moon's ellipse so that full moons are all happening close to us. Yes. It's that sort of convergence yes. of all of those yeah. things. Yeah. Right. Although remembering that supermoon definition is really yes. arbitrary, <clears throat> with the air quote version of yeah. the definition, yeah. Uh, so in this, so what happens with this in terms of the length of a month is it does actually make our months a little bit longer. So instead of being the twenty-seven point three two days, which we had for the uh, sidereal month, this makes them up to twenty-seven point five five days. Right. So a little okay. bit of a change. Okay. okay. All right. So that's fine. Now we've got a fourth type of one, and yeah. this is to do with the moon's orbit relative to the equator of the Earth, if you like, or the ecliptic plane. Okay, yep. Talk me through it. Okay, so the Earth is going around the sun. Now, we're a little bit tilted over, Mm -hmm. which is so our equator doesn't line up with the equator of the sun. That's right. That's why we have seasons. Yeah. That's where that comes from. But we drew draw this imaginary plane, which is the Earth's orbit around the sun, and this is the ecliptic. It's the plane that most of the planets pretty much orbit in. Okay. Right? Now, the moon is tilted to this plane, so it doesn't follow exactly the Earth's uh, ecliptic right. as it goes okay. around. It's tilted by not a super huge amount. It's about five degrees. Right. So it's not a lot, but you know, non-trivial. But what this means is you get two important points in the moon's orbit called nodes. And I'm going to guess that's where it crosses the ecliptic. Yes. Hey! So you get a point where you get an ascending node. It's like when the moon comes up into the northern celestial hemisphere and you get a descending node. And it goes back down again. Okay, so just picturing this in my mind then, I'm imagining a plate or (laughs) we want to go back a couple of episodes, a pancake, uh, which is the solar system, flat. That's what, let's say for the sake of an argument, all the planets are orbiting around the sun. So it's nice and flat. And then the moon going around the Earth... If it was on exactly that plane, it would be going around on that same level, just on the surface of that of that pancake. Um, but it's not. It's tilted slightly. So for some of the moon's orbit, it's ducking down below, and then it hits a node mm-hmm. and comes up above, and then ducks down below and comes up above. And every time it crosses, that's a node. Yeah. Okay. And therein lies another definition of a month. Yeah. Now, those modes were nodes were known since very ancient times for astronomers. Astronomers have been doing these maths calculations yeah. for a long, very long time. Yeah. Um, and they, they were thought, I'm not sure exactly what the link was, but that was something to do with dragons. <laughs> well, it has to be. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Uh, so this is called a draconic month. Right. And this is um, used by using those nodes, using how long it takes for those nodes to return to the original points and uh, or to rotate around. And that whole period that it takes the nodes to go around is um, 18.6 
years. Mm -hmm. So that gives us a draconic month, which is interestingly shorter than the other months. This is the shortest month of all. Uh, It's 27.21 days. And the reason why it's shorter is because the uh, nodes are moving around the opposite direction to to say the moon's orbit. Okay, I'm going to take your word on the maths for that one. Yeah, sure. All right, so we've got anything from 27.2-ish up to, what, 29 point something. So somewhere in the middle there, around 28 days is the average. Can you take an average? Is that allowed? Yeah, um, although you might not have the same number of days. Well, if you want the same number of days in a month, then you're going to have to I have guess so. days which yeah, are yeah. not yeah. nice I mean, I guess that does kind of complicated it is really interesting that we have all of this and there's another four we haven't even talked about yeah you found another well, at four least, definitions of at least there are more than a hundred different perturbations to it, the moon's orbit it does kind of though does beg the question for me which is do we care and <laughs> do we need a definition for a month we clearly don't from a calendar point of view like it's not like on the basis of this information we're now going to go oh well, we're just going to throw March out, you know, that doesn't have that number of days anymore. We're going to go with 27.2 or whatever we choose because that's ridiculous. That's not how the world works. We work in a number of days and it's just a calendar. It's just a convention. Fine. We don't even need months or weeks. We could just do whatever the hell we want. Do we need a definition of a month or is this turning it around and just saying we can measure these intervals? And so if we're interested in nodes, then we're talking about 27.2 days. If we're interested in this, then we're talking about that. Well, we do need to know this information and we need to know for not just scientific reasons, but also cultural reasons as well. So as as you'd say, okay, our, our whole calendar, is, it kind of works. And we normally you probably haven't thought about how actually the whole calendar is just a thing that happens and yeah. you know the months are there and they do things until but you have actually, to remember does this month have 30 or 31 days and then yeah. you have to go through the little thing in your head but other than that no but it's the, just... you know this modern calendar is relatively new and lots of cultures had different ways of making up their calendars that were based on astronomical observations and we need to know very precisely what the moon was doing in the past if we want to marry up kind of dates and things between yeah, between even yes. very different calendars that were happening in very different parts of the world. That- That's a good point. If you're if you're looking back historically and saying, okay, well this thing has been written down or carved in stone or told through oral tradition in this way, and we've got a date on that. The trouble is it's not based on our calendar. How do you match those up without an understanding of yeah, but how did their calendar work? And if that was based around a particular definition of a month which was based on astronomical observations. That makes sense. Yeah. Sure. And this propagates through to even relatively recently. I mean, even in the last hundred years or so, uh, we have had different countries using different calendars. So you, you've got to understand very precisely how these are built and what the you know, actual astronomical observations they were made sure. from were That doing. makes a lot of sense. I'd never thought of that before, but that's a good point. Uh, so, of course, that's very important culturally. Um, astronomical observations are very important as well. You, when you talk about things that were happening in the night sky, things like the lunar phase were recorded, the angle of the moon in the sky. And if you don't understand the subtleties of the moon's orbit, then you don't actually have a clear idea of what that date might be if you need to backtrack. Yeah, it's not particularly interesting to look back through history and go, well, when did they have a full moon in, you know, China in the year 10,004? Um, <clears> or <throat> 1,004, that's probably makes more sense. But things like supernovae were observed. You know, you would, the, the historical recordings of big bright light in the sky that 
you could even see during the daytime at this point on our calendar. Well, it'd be kind of nice to be able to pinpoint that. But to do that translation, again, you, you need to know what their calendar was, yeah. was talking about. Yeah. So that's looking backwards. We just want to look forwards, of course. And for the reasons we've already mentioned, you want to know where the moon's going to be at particular times. Because often you're planning missions to particular objects, including the moon, decades um, behind when you're actually planning to launch and do these things. So it's good to know. It's maybe more important, you would argue, for the planets in the mm-hmm. solar system. If you want to go to Mars, you've got to know when the windows of opportunity for Mars are, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. you kind of got to start your planning of your mission there because there's no point in launching unless you're going to actually end up <laughs> at the planet, which is a very long way away. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. So I can but see how are... all of that comes into the calculations uh, and, w- and it is really important, valuable stuff. I just never thought about it from the point of view of do we need definitions of of months? Um, but I guess from the point of view of, well, we need to be able to talk about these kinds of time periods, these kinds of spans, these kinds of events, astronomical events. When is the moon going to be in a particular position or in a particular phase of its orbit? And what do we even mean by that? Then you actually have to start talking about, no, what we're talking about is this sort of thing, not that sort of thing. Makes sense. Yeah. So the net result of all of this is that when the moon is close to the Earth, because of all these various uh, perturbations to its orbit, and when it is at perigee, it's about 14% bigger. 14% bigger. So supermoon. A super full moon would be 14% bigger, like a proper one, like an actual, yeah, this is as close, right, as it, yeah. close as it gets, astronomically super, right? Yeah. 14% bigger in the sky. And something like 30% brighter. Okay. 14% bigger, that's in terms of area. So in terms of its... Uh, that's in linear size. So that's, oh, that's in that's linear size. So just like diameter. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it definitely does look bigger. You could, you could, if you compared side by side, <laughs> you could do that. Yeah. You could spot that. You're right. If you took a photo when it was at its smallest and when it was at its biggest, you could definitely see a change of 14%. However, the moon's actually quite small in the sky. Like it feels big, but it's not. If you go and look at a full moon and, and just actually pay attention, it's very small. In the sky, it's like the size of the, the thumbnail out of the dis- distance of an outstretched arm. Like that's small. Could you really tell that it's a supermoon just by looking at it? I would argue you can't. Okay. If the only the only way I would maybe um, you know consider you were telling me that you could uh, observe a supermoon by eye would be if you were able to measure the brightness change hmm. with your eyes. Yeah, and okay. that takes a lot of training and a lot of you know work to do some people can do it exceptionally well did you just say a second ago what the difference in brightness was it's about 30 percent. so that is, that is quite a lot so that's more significant and that yeah. is because the area is bigger yeah call so it a third more yeah yeah okay so that's possible i'm just trying to think <laughs> the back of my brain was just doing a little i wonder how would you do that experiment like could you lock someone in a cupboard for a while and then take them out when there's a full moon so that they didn't have any external influence on whether or not they knew it was a super moon, like they haven't seen any <laughs> headlines or anything, and then take them out and then ask them. I don't think you'd get ethics funding No, for that. no, I wouldn't like to write no. the But it would be fun to try. Anyway, okay, so 14% bigger, 30% brighter. Yes. Nonetheless, we, there are lots of different full moons, whether they're super moons or not, that lots of people have asked me, is the moon a bit bigger at the moment? Ah. And the... There is a real and it's a very, very well-studied effect whereby the moon does sometimes look bigger, particularly if you see it near the horizon. Yes. Now, this comes up 
a lot. I, I had this conversation with one of my daughters not that long ago, and the number of people over the years who adamantly, absolutely, foot-stompingly, table-poundingly affirm that the moon is definitely bigger when you see it closer to the horizon. If you see a full moon when it's fairly low in the sky, it is huge, and that's like they're not making that up. That's real. It's real perception. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, we, you know deep it down. It looks real. You it know seems deep down the, the size of the moon does not change from when it is on the horizon and then six hours later when it's right above your head. Right? Well, okay, the actual moon, yeah. But I have heard people argue that it's to do with some kind of optical like magnification equivalent of why we see, you know, red sunsets and sunrises. The light coming through, the image coming through more of the Earth's atmosphere magnifies it in some way. Look, there's a really easy way to figure this out. How about you measure it? I'm assuming someone at some point in the history of the world has done that. Yeah, and it's something you can do yourself, right? Yeah. Like you said, you can hold up your thumb at arm's length when the moon's on the horizon and then a few hours later when it's above you and you will see it's exactly the same size compared to your thumb. Or even even when the moon is on the horizon, if you look at it through, say, a uh, toilet roll, then suddenly it doesn't look so big anymore. Ah, okay. If you strip out, what you're saying is if you strip out all of those external stimuli, all those other things that you can compare it with and just look at the moon then the psychological thing disappears. The illusion disappears. Yeah, well, it's it's very, very interesting. So I looked into the moon illusion quite a lot. And you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a... Um, Is that what it's called, ex- the moon illusion? The moon illusion, yeah. And it's not... Um, so I'm, I'm not an expert on these, but okay. I kind of... They, Psychologists write in and tell us, but don't blame Emily. They do kind of make sense. So there's lots of reasons, and we're not 100% sure exactly why. The effect is real. The um, average person will see the moon on the full moon on the horizon to be about 50% bigger than they see it to be when it's at zenith, which is wow, I guess, I wonder directly how above you, you. how you'd measure I guess you're just asking people, you know, does yeah. it look bigger? How much bigger does it look? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, so it's about 50%. So the real reason is not really, we're not really sure exactly the reason, but it's probably to do with a combination of a few things, mm-hmm. shall we say. Now, the first thing to say is it's absolutely not to do with the amount of atmosphere you're looking okay. through. It's not a magnification effect. No. It's a visual illusion. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we know this. And actually, it was Aristotle that put forward the atmosphere kind of oh, reason. Um, yeah. Wow, very, going very back that far. Uh, and unfortunately, he's just wrong about that one. I mean, I would have thought someone as brainy as Aristotle, because he had some good ideas, would have just done the whole measurement thing. Like, <laughs> like, isn't it better to do a measurement, an actual experiment, than to just come up with, maybe it's this? Yeah. And But someone else could just go and measure it and go, no, Aristotle, you're an idiot. It's wrong. Look, measure the thing. Hold up your thumb. It's really, really easy. No, no, no. I have a theory. Weird. Uh, so, but what is interesting, and that was kind of related, but it's not, it's not significant compared to the other things we're about to talk about, is that the atmosphere does change the color of the moon. Oh, okay. It, it, because of the whole sunset, sunrise Ex- thing? Yeah, it's the same yeah. idea. So you get a lot of um, refraction of the red light uh, through the atmosphere of the Earth, which makes the sun look really, really red. Mm-hmm. If you get um, very dusty or very, uh, lots of particulate matter in the atmosphere... You get amazing sunsets get really and sunrises. Red moons, yeah. yeah, and so the moon does um, the same thing. The yeah. harvest moon's very famous for this because lots of dust in the atmosphere. Oh, okay. Is that where uh, that comes from? Yeah. yeah anyway. uh, and if there's a volcanic eruption, then yes. often you see very red yeah. moons. So, or bushfires, yeah. or yeah, or lunar eclipses, uh, which is 
kind of exactly the opposite. So that's kind of when you're seeing the full moon. Oh, yeah. That's the moon in the Earth's shadow. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So it goes red then. Because, because you're looking at the sunlight that's passed through the Earth's atmosphere right, before it hits the moon. Right. The only, the only light remaining is the light that's gone through a lot of atmosphere. And so by definition, it's already red. Yes. And that, that's what comes back to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So other okay. than that, there's no atmospheric stuff going on. No. It although, looks a different color, but it's not magnifying. Some people have tried to argue that red things look bigger, but... <laughs> but again, it's an illusion, yeah, right? I'm, it's, I'm, not, I'm... it's not actually bigger. No. I think that to me no. is the interesting thing, is that people are so adamant. I'm not mucking around here. It is bigger. You go and look at it. Hey, it's not. So the reason is really to do with your brain. And I'm sorry, but you're just your brain is not working very well when it comes to brains are pretty unreliable. Brains and eyes put together, easy to fool, very easy, really easy. So if we look at the, I mean, the basic reason how we measure distance, right? And this this is important because this is when we want to figure out how big an object is. We have this inbuilt built tuition that we do to measure distances to objects, and for nearby objects, we can use parallax, Mm -hmm. which is the difference in the position of an object that's measured by your left eye and your right eye. And that gives you the depth perception. Right? Sure. You can say, well, that's, you know, the difference in those, your brain's converting that difference in the position of the object into a distance. Yeah. Classic one of those the other day. I was, again, on a, a car trip with one of my kids and, and noticing, she was noticing how out the window things close to the car whoosh past and things further away take much longer to go past the window. And she made that connection. It was a beautiful moment of, of, you know, intuitive science. She made the connection. But hang on, they're both going past the window at the same speed it's got to do with the distance the the perception that we see them going past a different speed yeah that's parallax that's how that works yeah. things closer seem to go past our field of view faster really interesting so you can use that to figure out how far away is this thing yeah to a limit yeah and because eventually you get to things that are so distant that parallax <laughs> the space between your eyes isn't big enough yeah parallax just gives up and shrugs yeah. yep and so the other thing that your brain does to figure out distances to objects is it says well i know how big a cup of coffee is. Mm-hmm. So if you put it quite far away and it looks very small, then I know that it's, you know, if it looks small, then it's far away. Yeah. It's the whole Sesame Street near and far, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I remember that. And you can play with that in really, really good ways. I remember going to a to a, a museum of illusions and things once where they had one of those crazy rooms where if you look at it from one viewpoint, it looks like a normal square box room, but the shape of the room is actually really weird. It's slanted away. It's playing with perspective. And so if you stand in one corner... And then have someone else stand in the other corner. One of you looks like a giant and the other one of you looks tiny. But because of the perspective, the trick of perspective, your brain goes, well, I know what rooms look like. And so clearly the obvious answer is there's a giant and a not giant in this room. Yeah. It's we fun, can isn't fool it? each other. It's really, fill really ourselves fun. really easily. Brains yeah. are stupid. So mathematically, what, we, what our brains are actually doing is um, it's kind of... A very simple way to look at it is we're saying, what is the angular size of an object? So if you had a very long ruler and you measured from where the bottom of the object is with the ruler and you swept it up um, and you measured where the top of it was with the other end of the ruler, that would sweep an angle. Mm-hmm. So that's angular size. And then the length, the distance away from us. So you've got an angle and a distance. Sure. And that gives you the apparent size, right? Now, when we look at this illusion with the moon, we are playing with one of those things, and we're probably playing mostly with distance. Our brains are failing on the distance measurement. Okay, so we're seeing it close to the horizon 
But we're not only seeing the moon close to the horizon. We're seeing other things close to the horizon as well. And that's messing up. Well, that's one part of the illusion. Okay. Okay. So let's let's play with this distance measure. So so when you look at the moon, you're you don't may, maybe realize it, but you're making a judgment of how far away it is. Okay. Because you're saying, well, clearly it's not you know in the next few meters away from me. Yes, because... it's not floating here just in front of me. Yeah. It's a long way. You away. know, it's a long way away. Uh, but it's this how far away it is relative to the horizon to your straight above you that's your brain is failing you on now one reason why it might be doing that is the reason you mentioned you've got foreground objects that you're comparing uh, this to so that means and you use foreground objects or sort of intermediate steps to judge distance all the time you say well i know that that tree is about 50 meters away so that thing that's smaller than that tree is going to be 100 meters away the next tree's you know smaller this is your brain doing a very clever kind of yeah okay things are getting smaller so they're getting further away um and this is we do this with clouds, so clouds that are right close to us are bigger, and clouds that are further away from us. The problem is that these objects are confusing mm-hmm. because we don't actually know the exact sizes of these things, and so we don't know the exact distances. So we just have kind of this broad kind of smaller things. Sure, and our brain does a little sort of internal calculation and says, "I think it's about this," which means we can overestimate the distance. So that means that we think that the distance is further than it should be okay uh and we do this and this is for the horizon and we do we think that we live in a bit of a squashed world so if you actually think about the human perception of the sky let's say you've got this beautiful arc that Mm -hmm. moves through the sky we actually perceive that arc to be say if you think, think about straight up you think that the top of the earth is closer to you if you were to go straight up than if the edge of the earth if you go straight across Hang on. If we look straight up, then the sky, the night sky, seems to be just up there, not very far away. Whereas if we look out to the horizon, that seems to be a long way away. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's okay. a squashed sphere. Right, right, right. So it's not it's not a, a hemisphere dome where the top is as far away as the horizon. It's more of a sort of squashed bubble sitting above us. Yeah. Where the top is quite close and the, the sides are a long way away. Okay. I'd never thought about that, but yeah, you're right. And this yeah. is, we, we see this with clouds. We actually sort of see the sky is almost being flat mm. in our own perception that the clouds on the horizon are kind of similar heights to the clouds close to us. Okay. So this is, this is called Emmett's Law, that we sort of have this weird perception. But what that means is, is that when we look at what we think the moon is when it's near the horizon, we think, oh, that moon's really far away. Really far away. Therefore, to be that size, it's got to be it's really big. It's got to be huge. Big. Look at the size of that moon. I mean, it's so far away, and yet, wow, it's really big. As opposed to directly above you where, well, it's just up there. I could basically touch it. That must be quite small. Yeah. Oh, dearie me, our brains are clever and yet stupid. Yeah, so the moon appears closer, which makes it smaller, which is weird. Yeah. It's almost the reverse of what your brain should be doing. Because it's the same size. Yeah. That's, oh my God. Okay, yes. So that's that's a definite illusion and that's probably a big part of the moon illusion. There's other bits as well that also are to do with distance. So one part is, uh, like we said, these, these objects that we're doing, these kind of jumping distances from one to another. And the third part is something called the Ponzo illusion. Ponzo, I like that. And this is, um, you can see some really nice examples of really like stick line drawings uh, of ladders receding into the distance. Um, what it, the Ponzo illusion is about is that when you have converging lines, these make an object that's further away look larger. 
than an object that's closer. Okay. And so we imagine that there might be some converging lines on the horizon. We kind of draw them in our brains. Uh, They might be coming from buildings or trees or whatever, but we're putting that, you know, when you learn how to draw a perspective, you have all these, uh, the vanishing point. It's this same kind of idea. You're looking down a road and it's wide near you and going down to a point right out of the horizon. It's vanishing down to a down to a dot. That's perspective. That's what we learn, as you say. Uh, And that very thing that that creates an illusion that makes things look bigger. Yeah, further wow. away. That's the Ponzo. And architects have to deal with this kind of stuff all the time, right? Um, even the ancient um, Greeks and Romans had to, when they built columns in their um, pantheons and colosseums and things, they had to change the shapes and the size of, the, of them to back compensate for the fact that humans oh, couldn't really? do, figure out this illusion. Because yeah. if they built them properly, like the way you would expect to, it would look wrong. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, it is quite cool. Wow. So again, we're overestimating the distance, which makes the moon look bigger. Right. So those are the the reasons why your brain might be messing up the distance measurement. There's also some argument that your brain is messing up the angular size measurement Mm -hmm. as well. And I think this was also what you were referring to earlier, whereby if you see foreground objects, then the moon looks bigger than those objects. So you say, okay, there's a building there or a tree there. I have a very good understanding of how big a tree is. Right. So the moon is bigger than that. So therefore, it looks much, really much big. bigger. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when you look at us straight above you in the sky, you don't have anything to directly compare it to. Yeah. It's weird psychology, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And this is um, something called the Ebbinghaus illusion. So you can do this with a um, very simple uh, way by drawing a circle. If you surround, you draw two circles exactly the same size. If you surround one circle with circles that are smaller. Oh, I've seen this. Yes. And one cir- the other circle with circles that are bigger. It changes the apparent changes size. Changes the perception of the size yeah. of the original circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll put a few links to some of these illusions. Because if you haven't checked out visual illusions, I saw a lecture a while ago by a, by a guy at University of Sydney who just did an entire lecture where he was bending people's brains with visual illusions. And they really hurt. And that's a classic, absolute cracker. Hmm. Really good. Wow, I hadn't thought about that before. But you're right. That That's probably got to do with it. So overall, it's probably some combination of all of the above, and maybe the combination is different for different individuals depending on how you learn depth perception. Yeah, but but they all point in the they same all direction, give which us is the same outcome. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think we can conclusively say then that a the moon is not bigger when it's closer to the horizon than when it's above us. B our brains are very very clever at fooling themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a good place to kind of wrap it all up is a quote that comes from Kant, actually. This is in the 1780s. So they were very aware about the moon illusion Mm -hmm. at the time. He says, the astronomer cannot prevent himself from seeing the moon larger at its rising than the same time afterwards, although he is not deceived by this illusion. Right. Well, that brings us to the very end of this incredibly moonfall, full moon, moonfall, moonfall episode. That's new no word. mooning, no mooning. No, no mooning. Not allowed. Not allowed. Not on this family friendly podcast. Uh, very moonfall episode of the Syzygy podcast. Um, I've learned a lot. I didn't learn a hell of a lot about super moons. I mean, you know, it's it's it is what it is. There's a limited amount that yeah, you can yeah, yeah. learn, I think. But we moons. went off in directions I really didn't think we were going to go. So thank you very much for that, Emily. You've done a heck of a lot of research as ever on something which is not your primary research focus, I think it's fair to say. But I'm happy to be interviewed for all of your upcoming uh, moon (laughs) 
questions. Yes, if you want, to, if you want Emily on your particular radio program to talk about the next crazy rat moon or whatever the hell it's going to be coming up in August, then give her a bell. She'd love to take your call. If you want to get in touch with us for any other reason, there are a load of different ways that you can do that. Emily, how do people do that? So we are at SZG Pod. And I, I missed a trick with this episode, honestly, because Did we you? had so many syzygies. Every full moon is a syzygy. Oh, Every oh, I didn't even bring the bell. bell. I mean, we could have we could have oh, gone crazy. I got to I got to apologise to uh, to Circus Stew because we didn't. I don't have the bell with me. Right, that's it. Need to bring the bell in for next time. Yeah, you're right. Loads yeah. of syzygies. So S Y Z Y G Y Pod. Uh, that's our Twitter handle, and you can find similar social media accounts across Facebook. We've got Instagram. Yeah, as previously mentioned, we're not on TikTok. I don't think we're ever going to be on TikTok or Snap to Chat or whatever the hell it's called. But yes, we have a website as well, syzygy.fm, where you can find all the past episodes and show notes and pretty pickies and, and all of that sort of thing. And a contact form where you can get in touch with us to say hi. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, a bunch of different ways you can do that. The number one way is to just share it around. Tell people that you think would be really excited about moons. If anyone's ever come up to you and said, no, I swear to you, the moon is bigger near the horizon, point them at episode 60 of the Syzygy podcast and then get them to go back and listen to the previous 59. If you want to support us financially, go to patreon.com or patreon.com and become a patron of the show. Sling a few dollars our way to help us keep the lights on and the electrons flowing through the website so that we can keep doing fabulous astronomy stuff every week. Having said that, we'll be back in about a week with more fabulous astronomy stuff. So until then, see you later, Emily. Catch you later. Bye, everybody. 